Hi, everyone. So please turn with me to uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Galatians 3, 1 through 9. Um, we're already at in chapter 3, and um, uh, I hope God's been speaking to you about uh, the gospel uh, powerfully through this series in this book. And now we enter a new chapter today. Let me read for us, and we'll pray, and let us um, jump into our time together of the message. Galatians 3, 1 through 9. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, a man of faith. That is the word of God. Uh, Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank thank you for this time that we uh, can uh, spend together as a church. Lord, we believe, not just in our minds, but hopefully in our hearts, Um, that you are here with us, that your Holy Spirit is uh, alive and well and he is moving in our hearts right now. So may that Holy Spirit work right now, God. Get rid of any distractions in our hearts and help us to focus on your word so that this may be indeed the word of life, living word that moves about and penetrates into our hearts and changes us and transforms us. Help us, Lord, especially as we um, have the Lord's communion uh, together. I pray that you would uh, uh, bless us even further as a church. God, we, we need you. We need more of you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Three points, uh, as usual, and these are uh, faith is enough to receive the Spirit. Second, faith is enough to justify. And third, faith is enough to qualify. I tried to find phi word for the first point. I did not succeed, so sorry about that. Um, But hopefully it will still help you follow along. First, Faith is enough to receive the Spirit. Verse 1, it says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So just a quick recap, you know, we've been seeing Paul arguing for the, the truth of the gospel through his own stories, even his, you know, Christian faith or Christian uh, testimony, rather. And he also used some logical arguments in order to prove his point. But now he speaks directly to the people of Galatia to make his point. And the tone, as you can see right away, is interesting and if not offensive. He uses words like foolish, uh, meaning he's very quite emotional here at this point, and he's very raw, and he's shocked and disappointed uh, at the fact that the Galatians are uh, far from the gospel. They're being swayed, they're being um, moved by this false teaching. So just kind of maybe get your attention to what Paul is trying to do here, maybe go to the next slide, he's doing this, facepalm. Like, are you serious, Galatia? Go back to the text. So again, that's what's happening here, that the, in the background, the false teachers are you know, seeping into this church and trying to persuade these you know, uh, new baby Christians, if you can call them that, and telling them to find acceptance before God through observing Jewish laws as opposed to trusting in Christ alone. And again, uh, Paul uh, not mincing these words and um, saying all these things show that the Galatians are indeed being moved and swayed. And I believe Paul is being harsh because He's, he loves them. He is feeling urgent about, you know, their faith. And what he's saying here is basically, you know, he thinks they're being stupid, right, foolish, uh, for heeding the, the false teaching. And he even says, uses the words like being bewitched, a meaning that in his mind, the only explanation that he can think of why they're being swayed is because they must be in some sort of a you know, evil spell. Not that he believes in you know, black magic, but he really thinks that there's something spiritual going on. They're being possessed even. Otherwise, they cannot be moved like this. And it seems like the basis for Paul's shock is that he has witnessed firsthand the, the, the raw experience that the Galatians had with the gospel. I think, first of all, that had to do with uh, Paul's preaching. You know, when he says Christ was being publicly portrayed as crucified, meaning when they heard the gospel from Paul, you know, it was so vivid and tangible to them. So they, the, the words really spoke to their hearts. So they really felt something in their hearts because of the gospel. And besides that, we see in verse 5 that there were even miracles. Verse 5, he says, uh, does he who supplies a spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? I mean, throughout history, uh, there seem to be some uh, certain periods of time where God specifically manifests his power through miracles in order to move his salvation plan forward 
So for example, you know, we see lots of miracles in the period of Exodus, right? When Israel is you know, exiting from uh, you know, Egypt and there are a lot of plagues and supernatural things to show God's power. And then obviously when Jesus came, a lot of miracles because Jesus was you know, not just trying to wow people, but he was authenticating the validity of his message. And similarly, in the early church, like the church in Galatia, there were a lot of miracles in that specific period in history because um, you know, God was showing the, his power to change people through the Holy Spirit. And even you know, much later, uh, as late as 1700s, in America, there was this thing called the Great Awakening um, you know, where there were miracles as well with a similar purpose of you know, showing God's power and moving you know, God's salvation forward in you know, a certain period of time. So that is really the purpose. It seems like that's the purpose of miracles in, in the world, not, again, just to wow people, not just impress people. It's for God's purposes. So you see, Galatians were therefore you know, sitting on the front row seats, right? Seeing all these great miracles happening in their midst. And Paul is saying, are you serious? You saw that being raised. You saw people being healed because of the Holy Spirit working among your midst. And you are thinking that that is a result of, you know, works of the law? Is that what happened? Paul can't believe that. And verses two, uh, two, two, three, two through four, rather, and he concludes with this section in this way. He says, let me ask you, this, ask you only this. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? Indeed, it was in vain. I can almost hear in these words Paul saying that you know, beyond these spectacular miracles that must have happened in their midst, he's trying to say, I think, that the biggest miracle, greatest miracle of all is God changing people's hearts because that's the most impossible thing unless God works. So Paul is saying, he, he brings up suffering here, meaning you know, the Galatians suffered for the gospel after they became Christians, maybe because they were persecuted by you know, their family members or whatnot. They suffered, and, and they at the same time witnessed the power of the Holy Spirit that comforted them, that sustained them, and they, they, they also changed their character through you know, those difficult times. And again, that's a miracle, God changing people. And again, Paul's asking, Galatians, did you really experience all these great things in your hearts and you know, outside of you because you worked so hard by keeping all these rules? Or was it rather you let go of your control and you just let God do his sovereign grace and poured his Holy Spirit on you because you simply trusted him, because you simply received his grace. Which one is it? The answer has to be obvious to them and to us. You see, the point is that in Christian walk, 
the Galatians must be convinced that they live by faith. They believe that God will change them, not them changing themselves by keeping some rules or formulas. Meaning, their spirituality cannot be manufactured by human means. That's what Paul is saying. You know, when I was a youth pastor, and some of you guys know uh, that I was a youth pastor for three and a half years in Wisconsin. And every year, you know, we would go to uh, this very remote area in Wisconsin, and, you know, we, have, we would have this uh, winter retreat um, there for four days. And this one year, you know, I was leading a, a prayer time on the last night of the retreat, you know, and, and everyone got so emotional, and, and they were, like, praying out loud and, you know, crying, and it was it was Good night, powerful night. But then on the, in the next year, same place and same time, you know, I was leading you know, prayer time you know, on the last night of the retreat. Uh, again, same situation, same setting, but at that time, at this time, everyone was really quiet. And, and they didn't seem to be moved at all. And this one student uh, of mine at the time, and, and you know, her and I were talking after the retreat, and, uh, and she was telling me that she was so mad that the prayer time this year was so not emotional. And then she proceeded to allude that we should plan this time in certain ways so that it will be emotional next time. And you know, I knew this student really well, and even her parents and her family, so I really cared for her, and I just simply gently, you know, reminded her that, you know, works of God, exciting our hearts and setting our hearts on fire, these are not manufacturable. And, and to my joy, you know, she's been really maturing since then, and, you know, it's my joy to see her grow, even these days. But I would argue that this is not unique to the student. I would argue that this is often temptation for us too in our spiritual lives uh, and, and same temptation that Galatians had, which is that you know, we do certain things and especially we follow certain you know, formulas and do certain things expecting in return certain spiritual experience. And can I even dare to say and argue that at that time, when you do that, you're treating God as a spiritual vending machine. You, you put X amount of what, whatever in your spiritual walk, and you expect Y amount of things in return. But can God be controlled like that? Because all along, our spiritual experience, highs and lows, are of God's sovereign grace. The Holy Spirit, by His own choice of time and place, lets us experience certain things at His timetable and in the best way that He knows for us and for His glory. We cannot control it. God is not an app that we click on when we want something. <laughs> and I share this because I think this can encourage many of us in our spiritual walk because I don't know about you, but you know, I 
go through many, you know, desert, dry times, you know, in my spiritual walk. It's not always mountaintop experience. There are sometimes that are really dry and not as, you know, exciting. It's, it's actually really boring when I, you know, read the Bible or pray. There's nothing happening in my heart. And that's why the Bible says over and over and over, especially in the book of Psalms, it says, wait on God. It's really crucial in your spiritual walk. Wait on God. Not control God. Expect what you want in your timetable, but wait on God. And at this point, you know, your question might be, okay, so we just wait, not do anything? <laughs> um, Rather, the Bible calls us to wait by positioning ourselves a certain way so we can catch the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? What's interesting is both in Hebrew and in Greek in the Bible, the Holy Spirit means literally wind. Wind. In Hebrew, rock. And in Greek, um, pneuma. It's both means wind. And therefore, the good illustration for, for this, how to wait on God is this. The good illustration, if you go to the next slide, is sailboat. You know, we can't move the boat by ourselves um, unless you're really jacked. Uh, you can't. What you can do is roll out the sail on the mast, right? And then turn it into the right direction uh, and then catch the wind, and forward it goes. That's what it means to grow in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? We position our hearts by tilling our hearts through the means of grace. Means of grace are three things. The Word, sacraments, and prayer. So whenever, as you wait on God, you you know, again, till your hearts, prepare your hearts through the word, you know, daily in your individual times and also publicly and, and corporately in the, in, on Sunday services like this or the, in your life groups, wrestle with the word with your brothers and sisters and you pray for God to work and move. And as we'll do in a moment, sacrament, God really blessing our hearts and showing who he is through this time. And through that, your heart is positioned to the right direction. And it's a matter of time in God's timetable to let you catch the wind of the Holy Spirit. So wait on God. Don't rely or, or expect that you can control your spiritual walk. That's what the Galatians were essentially doing by following these rules. No. We all want control in our lives. We're all control freaks, to be honest. But God is not to be tamed like that. So we live by faith, not by works. Faith is enough. Second, faith is enough to justify. So now follow with me. Paul's going to uh, try to drive home this point using uh, Old Testament illustrations. And the second point is pretty quick in that regard. Verse 6. It says this, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
Here, Paul is quoting from uh, Genesis 15, 6. You know, there, God was promising to Abraham the impossible promises of uh, Abraham becoming a nation of people when he didn't even have a biological son of his own. But he says, in response to these promises, Abraham believed God. And interestingly, the text says that God counted that faith as righteousness. Let's define what righteousness is, because we use that word a lot, but what is it? You know, righteousness means being right before God or being acceptable, you know, morally and in every aspect of our lives. Because God is a holy God, and he must not tolerate unrighteous people. And of course, the problem with that is no human being in their uh, strength, own strength, can make themselves righteous, but all fell short of the glory of God, and they're all sinners. They cannot earn righteousness either by good works because every good work is tainted with sin. The only way any human can stand before God righteous is when God gives his righteousness. Uh, The reformers called it alien righteousness to humans. And it, it says here, astonishingly, the text says, God gave his righteousness to Abraham on the basis of his faith, meaning because he believed, God considered that as he has fulfilled his law, his requirements. And here I believe that this faith of Abraham included faith in Christ too, because only through through faith in Christ you are justified. Because here uh, in John 8, 56 and 58, it says, your father Abraham, Jesus saying, Rejoice that he will see my day. He saw it and was glad. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham, I am. Abraham saw through the eyes of faith, and he was a prophet. He saw the future, and he believed in the Redeemer and the Messiah. And this faith came before Moses, before Moses gave the law, Torah to uh, Israelites at Mount Sinai. What that means is faith alone, not by works. Uh, People, Abraham, anybody can be declared righteous. So in that regard, Paul is saying, you know, just as Abraham was declared righteous through faith, so too can the Galatians and anybody be justified through faith alone. So Abraham is, in a sense, in that sense, example for us and the Galatians. But let me move on here, that he's not just an example. So let me, let me show that in the third point. Faith is enough to qualify. For now, we'll skip verse 7, but we'll come back to it. But let's look at verse 8. It says this, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the uh, Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So astonishing is that God preached the gospel to Abraham even before Jesus came. That's what Paul is saying here. 
Um, here, Paul is likely quoting uh, Genesis 18, 18, along with uh, Genesis 12, 3. And here, the, the Greek word for the nations is none other than ethnos, uh, which, where which uh, we, we get the word uh, ethnicity from. But uh, more importantly, it is often translated to English as the Gentiles. So what Paul is saying is that God had planned, it wasn't his plan B, he had planned from the foundation of the world that he would save the Gentiles through Abraham. That's why he chose Abraham, to save the Gentiles through him. Now the question is, what does it mean that the Gentiles were saved through Abraham? So we go to verse 9. It says, So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So those of faith, the Gentiles who believe, and Abraham, what they have in common is faith. They both believe in Christ instead of working for salvation. And Paul is saying that just as Abraham was blessed to be declared righteous before God by faith, so too the Gentiles will be justified in the same way. And with these in mind, now we go back to verse 7. Now it will make sense. It's saying, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Please follow with me. Follow the logic here. Because Abraham is a man of faith, and the Galatians are trying to be saved likewise by faith. Therefore, they're not just following the example, but they're actually called sons of God, meaning they belong to Abraham and his family in his spiritual family, which is people of God. You see, the Jews insisted that they're automatically people of God because they're biologically you know, related to Abraham. They call them Father Abraham, and they took pride in the fact that they are already people of God. And, and by that, the Gentiles were ostracized. They're oh, we're excluded from the people of God. But Paul is saying, you can't be more wrong than that about what God is saying about who the people of God is. Because only those who believe, whether Gentile or Jews, can be part of the people of God. The sons and daughters of God are not the ones who are related to Abraham biologically, but only those who have faith like Abraham in Jesus can be included in the people of God. And the Jews, or whoever has some sort of pride in their lineage or whatever, have to humble themselves and let go of all the credentials in their lives and cling on to faith alone. Pride people really struggle to become Christians because they have to let go of what they take pride in. And a good example is the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. You might be familiar with this parable. It's a story where there's a rich man you know, uh, who lived a very lavish life on earth, but he ends up in hell after his death, while Lazarus is a beggar on earth, but 
after that, he ends up in heaven um, in, in Abraham's bosom. And in hell, the rich man keeps calling Abraham, if you remember, Father Abraham. Why? Because he's appealing to his ethnicity, appealing to the lineage, connection with Abraham, saying, I'm supposed to be accepted in heaven. But no, it didn't save him. And what's really interesting about this story is this, that the rich man is never named in the story. But Lazarus, the, the insignificant poor man, beggar, is named as Lazarus. What that means is only God recognized Lazarus because Lazarus on earth, his identity, his name, his worth, his value was bound up in God, not in the things of the world like the rich man did. Therefore, it is the one who hopes and have faith in God, whom God knows as his own and calls them by name. He recognizes them. They're recognized. They're affirmed as part of God's people. They are truly the spiritual son and daughter of Abraham, not the people who boast in other things. They are not part of Abraham's family. Jews or anybody have to acknowledge that. So my question to you is, in your life, do you care to be known by God or do you prefer in the heart of hearts be more affirmed and known and valued and recognized other people or the world? Which one is it? Because our eternity hangs on which one we choose. And I think what it means is for us that, you know, when things go well in our lives, it may not always be a good thing. Here's what I mean. Uh, to be sure, don't hear me say I, I condemn success in life. You know, let's say that our careers are looking good, whatever that means. And let's say our finances are stable. Whew, don't have to worry about money. And, and people praise us for whatever reason. Again, good things, but... When these things happen, we should watch out our hearts because we can be very easily tempted to start identifying and putting our name on these things. And therefore, our name before God becomes more and more hazy. And before we know it, we may not feel recognized by God at all, or rather, we don't care about what God says about us, about who we are. When good things become ultimate things, they become our idols and they become our identity. But at the same time, here's the encouraging part of this. Justification by faith also means that when things do not go well in our lives, it could be a good thing, although you know, it can really make, make us sad many times when our careers sink, when we have to worry about next month's you know, rent, or people shun us for whatever reason. It's sad, but it could also be a good thing, like what happened to Lazarus, meaning we are perhaps being pushed by God, urged by God to examine our hearts and see where our name lies 
and come back to the true name that really matters. Meaning there's always hope for believers. Always hope. Because even the worst things that we can experience in our lives can be the best things because we have Christ in life. He is our life. So may we rest in God's arms as opposed to finding our name and identity in the things of the world. Find your worth and identity in Christ. And that's what living by faith alone means in this passage. Let's pray together.